With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. This is John Middlecoff from 3 and Out with John Middlecoff. Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The Volume. Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brever and alongside me is Logan Camden and we have a jam-packed show for you all today. We're going to be breaking down all of the Game 6 action from across the NBA and previewing the two conference semifinal series that are set to start this weekend. But we got to start, Logan, with the first round series that is still alive that has consistently been the most competitive the most exciting it is now going seven the kings came back after losing three straight and had a resounding road win to tie things up what was your biggest takeaway from this what were the keys i think the biggest key was well consistent offense is where we can start off i mean that's been one of my biggest red flags about the dubs, you know, through the regular season and here in this game as well in this series is consistent offense. It's weird. We haven't really seen a game like this where Wiggins, Poole, and Clay aren't really consistent, aren't really reliable throughout the night. This was a mid-Steph game, and when you get a mid-Steph game, you need the other guys around you to step up, and they just didn't. Uh, Wiggins, Poole, and Clay all struggled. They post an abysmal 89.9 offensive rating in this game. Only 25% of their shots came at the rim. They converted an abysmal 41% of their at-rim attempts. That is a that's the worst mark of any team in the playoffs thus far. And so when you have that, right? When you have a game where Steph does not go nuclear, when Jordan Poole does not have a great game, when Wiggins does not pull his weight, when Clay does not have a great game. What do you need to have happen on the other end? Well, you need to play great defense, and that is where I was most disappointed with the Warriors tonight. That was in transition and just effort-wise. I just thought the Kings outran them and out-hustled them, dude. Consistently, the Warriors get a bucket. I'm sitting there going, wow, okay, here we come. You know, it always felt in this game, and I don't know if this is because we've seen so many title runs, I just kept waiting for that Dubs run where they pulled ahead and they kept pulling, and it never came mostly because the Kings always had an answer. You get a bucket, and they are immediately running on the other end of the floor, and they're trying to score. So, one, I just think they 
outran them. They tried to get upbeat. They tried to stop those runs in their tracks. And they didn't have an answer for De'Aaron Fox or Malik Monk. That has been the one consistent thing that we've seen throughout this series is there's no one fast-footed enough on the defensive end to stop these guys in their tracks. Malik balled out this game, man. This was an awesome Malik game out of the pick-and-roll. I'm not just talking scoring and getting buckets-wise, man. We saw some really good passing and decision-making from Malik in this game. And it's sad, dude, because I think this is a game that Golden State could have taken. You have another really bad Herder game. You have another bad Domas game. I mean, I think this is the worst that we've seen Domas in this series. Um, He gets those fouls early, fouls out of this game too. But the two best offensive players in this game were on Sacramento's side, in my opinion, dude. Fox and Monk were just unstoppable. They outscore Golden State 44-36 in the paint. And like I said, when you're not getting that consistent offense, you have to get it back somewhere in winning plays or in effort plays or in defense, and you just didn't get that from Golden State. Golden State gets out-rebounded 53-42 in this game. They get crushed on the offensive glass 18-11. This was a nightmarish game for Golden State. This is the worst I've seen them in the series, and it's a real stark contrast from the last two games we saw from Golden State where me and you were sitting here going, wow, I wonder if Golden State has hit their championship stride. Um, I'm not panicking. I'm not worried. I know Golden State. uh, The true measure is going to be in this game with their backs against the wall. Obviously, there's a lot on the line here. I trust their championship identity, but uh, the inconsistency uh, is a little bit alarming for Golden State, and it's very disappointing. Um, Flat out, I just didn't think anything went right for Golden State in this game. As close as they got, this is the worst I've seen Golden State play in these playoffs. I absolutely agree. I thought that game one, obviously, although it was a loss, we saw them have some really impressive offensive moments. This was just a situation where the Kings pretty much outclassed them throughout and really separated in that second half. But it's interesting to me that you started with the offense because I think you have to start with the opposite side of the ball and the consistency with which Malik Monk and De'Aaron Fox were getting downhill penetration. And This was the problem in games one and two, right? It was those guys just consistently getting into the teeth of the defense and then finishing themselves or creating opportunities for others. And this was one of only a couple games in the series in which we've really seen the Kings shoot well and capitalize on strong playmaking from their guards. And so they had those guys getting to the rim, finishing at a high level. They had 17 made threes in this one. I thought they were super opportunistic in those transition, semi-transition situations, attacking a defense that wasn't fully set. But even in the half court, man, this is what I've talked about a few times throughout this series. The Kings have changed their offensive identity. And keep in mind, this was an offensive identity that led them to be the most efficient in the league this year. But they were so predicated upon running through Sabonis, him touching the ball every possession, the handoffs, the off-ball movement, the creative screening away from the ball. They barely ever ran pick-and-roll. They were the number 29 pick-and-roll offense in the regular season in terms of frequency. Playoffs, they are the third most frequent pick-and-roll offense. And it is because they have come to a point where Sabonis is not playing well is certainly one part of it. But the other dynamic is the Warriors cannot contain their two dynamic hyper-quick guards. And this was one of the most glaring instances of that. And I think those two deserve so much credit. And this was a spot where it wasn't a ton of the like crazy intermediate shot making from De'Aaron Fox that we have seen at spots in this series. They were just getting the looks they wanted, man. They both shot well from deep. 
but a lot of it was at the rim. Malik Monk continues to just eat up free throws. And if you just look at the guys who are consuming a majority of the guard minutes for the Warriors, Clay just doesn't have a prayer, man. I love him. He is a great defensive guard over the scope of his career. He has clearly regressed. He is slower on his feet. And this would never have been an ideal matchup for him because these are smaller, very quick guards. Poole, obviously, is a glaring defensive liability and a liability overall in this game, yet again, which has happened too often throughout this series. So I do look at the minutes distribution and I go 22 for Poole when he's playing totally out of control, when he's finishing horribly, when he's taking bad shots. We get 10 GP2 minutes, who just, I thought, had a stellar outing in Game 5, was great on the glass, always is going to be one of your best options to contain those great downhill guards at the point of attack, who was productive as a cutter offensively. For him to get shoved to the back of the rotation didn't make sense to me. And then I am really impressed with Moses Moody and his ability to step up and play legit rotational minutes in this series, Logan. Kaminga was the guy who we saw more consistently progress throughout the regular season. Moody is the guy who has asserted himself, who has confidently stepped into shots, and who has defended at a pretty high level. So I thought I would have been down to see more than 13 Moses Moody minutes. I just think Poole is at a point where when he's playing like this, you just got to yank him. Because, of course, you can have the ceiling that you see in a Game 4 type of scenario where all of these guys are clicking. And Poole is this dynamic pull-up jump shooter. And he can get downhill consistently. And he can make solid reads as a playmaker. But when he's not doing those things, he's not bringing you any value. And I just thought that this was really, really bad for him. I thought his minutes were destructive. And he's shooting 34% from the field in this entire series, Logan. And you talk about that at-rim field goal percentage. I have some real issues with how Jordan Poole approaches finishing, honestly. I think he's incredibly skilled, obviously. But... Too often, I feel that he overcomplicates things. He loves to finish with his right from the left side. Those wrong hand finishes, a couple of those went wrong tonight. He loves his scoop finishes. One of those got swatted tonight. Another one he just missed because he's just controlling the ball out there with one hand. And I just think there's definitely some refining that needs to be done there. So I agree there's not much that went right for the dubs tonight. But I will say the Kings continue to win. With bad DeMontis Sabonis, and in this game, largely without DeMontis Sabonis, which is insane because there was one point this year where they were literally equivalent to the best offense in the NBA when he was on the court and the worst when he was off the court. He was that transformative. And I thought this regular season, especially pre-All-Star break, there was no question as to who was their best and most valuable player. He changed how they were able to play basketball completely. And this series... He has one more assist than turnover in totality. He scored 15 and a half points per game. And we have seen the Warriors give him fits when he tries to score on the interior. We've seen them pester him. Draymond getting his hands in there, poking balls out. Looney challenging him physically. And we know that he's not a super skilled post scorer, right? He's going to rely on pretty much brute force and then his touch with those close range shots. But he's not got a deep bag. So we've seen them force him into offensive fouls. Obviously, we've seen them concede jumpers to him repeatedly throughout this series, which totally limits the effectiveness of any action that you're running through him and obviously hurts the Kings spacing overall, allows you to have a second defender in the paint. So I thought it wasn't the worst thing that they were forced to go five out in this game and play Trey Lyles more minutes. Like, really, the only thing that Sabonis is doing well 
consistently in this series is rebounding. And we saw the Kings dominate on the offensive glass in the early stages of this game. There, Sabonis gets a ton of credit. But outside of that, I don't know that there's been a more disappointing star in these playoffs. In fact, I can pretty confidently say that there hasn't. Like, Giannis obviously underachieved. He played two games. Trey started ugly and then played some brilliant games. Sabonis has consistently legitimately underachieved, and his team has had to change their style and have other guys excel for them to be hanging in there. And I give him the utmost credit for doing that because this is a do-or-die spot against a dynasty on the road, and they stepped up, and they completely outplayed them. 100%. I think the Warriors are giving you the blueprint on how to defend Demontis Sabonis. I mean, until he develops, uh, we talked about this on last show, until he develops that mid-range shot, he had a three early in this game that blew my mind, even though it was just wide open from the corner. (laughs) I went, was that Domas? You know, I had to wipe my eyes a little bit. Um, Until Domas develops that mid-range jumper, a floater, some touch shots in there, or a three-point shot, I think this is how teams should defend him. I mean, the Warriors are giving you the blueprint on how to defend this guy. Even in completely dropping in the pick and roll or doubling the ball handler in that situation, it's just more effective letting your help guy come over and help with Domas or just coming back over late. It's way more effective. I want to touch on one more thing that you mentioned. I just want to get some context behind these numbers in transition. I mean, so disappointing. Carson, Sacramento... Uh, had an offensive rating of 126.3 in transition compared to the Warriors, who were at 69.2. That's abysmal, man. I mean, that's abysmal. And consistently, I think that's where we saw the biggest discrepancy. There was a bad possession by Jordan Poole, too, where he's not getting back. I don't know, man. It it was weird, too. There were a lot of guys off. It was a bad defensive performance. I just didn't see that championship energy and synergy that I've come to expect from Golden State Mm-hmm. Not only night to night, but just consistently in the playoffs. Uh, I think this is the most disappointed. I don't know if I can say that. Milwaukee's probably entire series was the most disappointed I've been with any one team. But in an individual game, this is the most disappointed I've been in a team. Not only because it feels like a must-win game here. Again, when the Kings' second star is so off. He's in foul trouble early. Kevin Herter is not having a great game. I know Keegan Murray made a lot of threes in this game, did not shoot well from the floor. He ate on the glass. I'll give Keegan a lot of work, a lot of credit for his effort on the glass. But again, this is a Warriors team that has struggled on the road, and this felt like a must win. We got to close the door right now because Sacramento Stadium, it is going to be raucous in Game 7. This is a Warriors team that we all know has struggled on the road consistently. This is a very tough very tough Game 7 in what I think is going to be a very, very tough environment. I, I think it's going to be – I think that place is going to be jumping, Carson. I think it's just going to be a tough place to play. And this just felt like a really big game for Golden State where they needed to shut the door. And I'm disappointed that they weren't able to get it done. So what is your prediction for Game 7? Oh, I'm still taking the Warriors. I just – Okay. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to make it seem – we talk about the biggest thing – I think in predicting basketball games and with what we've seen from every series is sustainability. And the war I can count on the Warriors formula because I've seen it so many times. And maybe I'll be wrong. I've been wrong many a time. You know, there is a world where I can see Fox and Monk just eating again. But this is a Warriors team where I know the formula. I've also seen this Warriors team with their backs against the wall. And I've seen them flip that switch time and time again. So for consistency, for reliability, for what I've seen with my own eyes, 
there's still a part of me, even though they've struggled on the road, I just trust Golden State more, and they've also got the best player in this series in Stephen Curry. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm still going with Golden State for Game 7. Are you with me, or are you feeling Sacramento now? I'm with you, and they don't just have the best player in this series. They have the best player in the series by a country mile because they have a top 10 player of all time. And I think that absolutely they need peak defensive intensity and effort consistently throughout 48 minutes. I think they need good clay, and I think they either need very good Jordan Poole for 25-plus minutes or as little Jordan Poole as possible. And by the way, I misspoke. He ended up with 26 minutes in this game, Moody with 16. I think I noted those numbers a little bit before that garbage time stretch. But Jordan Poole playing as many minutes as Draymond Green in this game just makes no sense to me whatsoever, coming off of a Draymond masterclass. So I think a lot of this is going to come down to the sort of winning plays that we have seen the Warriors make in that game through three through five stretch, right? Looney's unbelievable dominance on the glass, the hustle stuff from DiVincenzo and from GP2, and the unbelievable all-around defensive dominance as a helper from Draymond Green. They just need to channel all that again, and this felt like a game where they didn't totally have that, but backs against the wall, I think you put the ball in Steph's hands as much as possible, Obviously, so much of his value comes away from the ball, but their most unguardable action is that Steph pick and roll, especially with the level of decision-making that we have seen from Looney and Draymond just dissecting this Kings defense, spotting cutters, spotting shooters with regularity. You're going to get a good look out of Steph pick and roll basically no matter what to me. So I thought early in this game too, the Dubs were doing something that I wish they had stuck with where they were using Poole as the screener. So you're initiating a switch with Keegan Murray who just doesn't have a prayer. But they didn't consistently stick to that. I think in a game seven, we need to pull out all the chips. You do something like that. You go to Steph as much as possible. And I do think that they're the better team at their best. I think they have the better defensive personnel. I trust the winning plays element for them again and I would say I trust their top six more I think they have more impact guys throughout that entire group I don't exactly trust pool right now but I do believe any of their top six is more likely to swing a game make those kind of plays that are championship caliber plays than a Harrison Barnes or a Keegan Murray is for Sacramento those guys just don't step up to the plate in that same way. It's pretty much just got to be a big shooting night if they're going to have that kind of big impact on the game. So I do still like the dubs in game seven. This was concerning. It was not good for them. And again, props to Sacramento, mad props to Malik Monk, who has been one of my favorite NBA players for far too long, irrationally. And he's played some of his best basketball in this series, but I do think it's still dubs in seven. The Lakers, meanwhile, Logan, in the other game six that we saw today, did not play with their food, and they put things away about as decisively as you could. What was your take on this performance from them? The Lakers have continued to ascend in this series, and I hope they continue to ascend through these playoffs. I mean, I felt like the first two quarters of this game, I was like, this is peak Lakers basketball. This is what I've been waiting on. And what did it start with? Mm -hmm. It started with LeBron James actually choosing to control more of the game like you laid out in the last episode, Carson. Uh, great job from D'Angelo Russell and Austin Reeves in the pick and roll. I thought that I thought that Reeves and Russell came out tonight and were just a lot more poised, a lot more ready for the moment, a lot 
I, I, I can't quantify it. I can't really describe it. They just looked like they I, they wanted it. They were attacking. They were hunting in the pick and roll. And I like when D'Lo's like that, man. I've seen D'Lo tentative. I've seen D'Lo scared. This was not a D'Lo that was intimidated. He was out there hunting. And then the biggest thing to me, too, is that LeBron was, one, getting downhill in a lot of possessions, but two, playing with his back to the basket and just drawing attention where, I mean, that's LeBron's biggest asset, I think, at this point. This is a guy who is older. He's not He's not going to be able to control a game like young LeBron, like 2018, 2016 LeBron, where he can get downhill at will. Yes, he can, but that's going to take a bigger toll on his body as the playoffs go along and as a game goes along. So how do you maximize where LeBron is with where his body's at? Well, that's by just taking attention, getting into the low block, in letting a defender who's on the wing slide down because he knows he might have to help if LeBron rolls off. That just opened shots up for his teammates, and I thought early LeBron did a phenomenal job of doing little things like that, of getting downhill and creating good shots for his teammates. And so I thought offensively, you have Reeves and D'Lo great in the pick and roll, D'Lo tough shot making, LeBron controlling a lot more of this game. And the biggest thing, too, is This was just a smarter offense today. They looked different. They were attacking mismatches. They were getting it down to AD when they put a smaller guy on him. Everything today, they just leaned in to what they did well. And I've been waiting for this, like, light bulb to go off where they play smart offense. I saw smart offense from the Lakers tonight consistently, and that's what encouraged me most. And then on the other end, we knew what they could do defensively. This has been the keystone of the Lakers' identity Uh, since they've made these trades, is we know that this defense can be great. They were making Desmond Bain work. They were making John Morant work. They were hustling early, making winning basketball plays. This might be the most impressed I've been with the Lakers all playoffs long, and I don't know, man. This might be the highest ceiling. I don't want to get overzealous. I don't want to get ahead of myself. This might be the highest ceiling I've seen reached of any team save Boston. But, I mean, they're playing fucking Atlanta, dude. Of course I expected that out of Boston. Um, this is the Lakers game I have been waiting on. You know, I don't know if we're going to be able to get consistent D'Lo like this where he is just knocking down every single tough shot yeah. that he makes. I don't think that's sustainable. But everything else uh, I was super impressed with. And I do think a lot of these things that we saw the Lakers do uh, is sustainable, specifically LeBron controlling more of this game and the great defensive intensity, and the Lakers playing smart offensive basketball. Get switches, attack your mismatches. Uh, I was very impressed with the Lakers. They ran them out of the building in the first half, built on it in the third. Uh, I, I was very, as a big Lakers supporter, and as two guys who were very heavily criticized for supporting the Lakers and picking them deep in these playoffs, uh, I was very, very pleased with their effort, with their intensity, and I, they're all around performance, man. Thank you, LA. This is what I've been waiting on. It's really interesting how much this team's range between dominance and disappointment has swung on a few key factors. And one of them absolutely is the play of their backcourt. And I think Reeves has been more consistently good. He's a better two way player. I think he's a better decision maker. He was a 90th percentile pick and roll scorer this year. He's a very willing catch and shooter. He just has a more consistent impact on the game no matter what. D'Lo is more dependent on that 
difficult shot making. I'm going to control this possession. I'm going to take a tough shot. If I make it, great. If I miss it, it's pretty frustrating. But when you get 42 and 14 combined from those two guys, there is certainly not a better team out west to me. And the Lakers are my favorite right now. I don't think we can deny how dominant a level they can reach defensively. And that's another big swing factor. How dialed in are they on that end? Because we've seen it, man. We saw the nine point first quarter and we saw it tonight. 15 blocks, man. There is so much length and athleticism on this interior defense with a top two defensive anchor on the planet, Anthony Davis, who I put in a tier only with Draymond Green, driving it all. And so you had both sides of it. And I love what you bring up about how consistently they were finding AD on the interior, out of pick and roll, him sealing off smaller guys. I thought they had a lot of good entry passes. So you got to give credit to the guards for getting their own and then for setting up the big fella. They were working the side pick and roll with LeBron too, which they love getting him good looks at jumpers. So he still didn't command the game in typical LeBron fashion in this one. It was He was opportunistic in transition. He got some good looks at jumpers. And so he got his 22 on 13 shots. He didn't have to go above and beyond. And he hasn't once in this series for an entire game, which I guess is a testament to this team. It's a good thing. I've talked about how I want to see that top-tier LeBron, but he hasn't been forced into that top gear. But D'Lo is a key swing factor here, man. In their losses in this series, he dropped 8 a night on 35% true shooting. In their wins, he dropped 21 a night on 62% true shooting. So I do worry about the wild inconsistency with him, but I do feel like Reeves is a bit of a security blanket there. Top-tier LeBron and AD dialed in how much they can exert themselves offensively is a security blanket. And the overall depth and versatility and defensive ceiling of this team. And I do just want to give them an extra shout-out on that end because Jaw settled all night and I thought was completely intimidated by AD, which you don't see from Jaw Morant. We saw Jaw go right at Rudy Gobert a couple years ago second year John Morant and dropped 40 on him, attacked the rim over and over and over again. And he did not do that in this game. I think on every half court drive that ended with an attempt from him, he was blocked three times and then he had two turnovers, which is just an astounding performance against one of the great downhill guards we've ever seen. And then they stifled Triple J. And if it was 80 one-on-one, if it was LeBron one-on-one, or if it was either of those guys with some help, He just had no chance, and their additional rim protection is really good. Braun, Vando, even Austin Reeves blocked two shots in this game. Wenyan Gabriel, when he plays, is another long, athletic, strong defender. So teams are going to have a hard time scoring on this team, man. They shrink the court. They protect the rim probably at a higher level than anybody else, and they have offensively two top-tier players when they're dialed in on that end and a couple of really good supporting pieces. And then you have your true role players, like your Rui Hachimura's, who I thought had another good game and continues to show his shot-making and athleticism. So I do think that they have the highest ceiling. But I think... There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notify, and Amex card member benefits at select events, 
You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This is Colin Coward from The Herd with Colin Cowherd. Angie's list is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big, small, indoor, outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled pros to get the job done well. Listen, I've got a couple of things in a bathroom in my house. Gotta get it fixed. I don't have time, and I'm not good at it. Angie is. In just a few taps in the Angie app or clicks on the site. You can have Angie tackle your home service project start to finish. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare, and hire pros to ensure a job done well. With 29 years of experience combined with new digital tools to simplify the process, Angie makes completing home projects really easy. Renters, you can use Angie too for moving, installations, or cleaning. Angie can even help with extremely specific projects. Just tell them what you need, and Angie will find the right solution for you. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com, or download the app today. Hey, guys, this is Matt Jones, Drew Franklin from the Fade This Podcast. we got a great episode coming up, picks in all the sports, football, basketball. We do them all, but here's a preview of this week's episode. Do you think it's more embarrassing to dye your hair or to have hair plugs? I don't think either are embarrassing if you're not trying to conceal it and act like you didn't. Okay, so you think if you just come out and go, I got hair plugs. Yeah, like check out these hair plugs. I mean, don't just walk around, hey, tapping, hey, <laughs> hey, stranger, I don't want you thinking this is natural. You know, but I mean, <laughs> do you, you have to do that with everyone you meet? try to act like they, uh, you know what I mean. Yeah. But I mean, like, like John Cena got him. You know, when John Cena came back to wrestling, he had a bald spot, and now he doesn't. Mm-hmm. You think he should be required in all interviews to say, "Look, by the way, I covered up my bald spot." Yeah, I guess it's weird. I mean, you don't wear a sign or like put a sign in your yard, but all right. So, what about toupees? Those are the most obvious. I but let's like. say you're like Bill Self, and you can get it to where it looks good. His is magical. I don't even know if his is a toupee. It is. I think he went into the future and had a procedure we haven't even discovered yet. And this episode was brought to you in partnership with DraftKings. To hear more, listen and subscribe to Fade This on iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to podcasts. Flip side of this is that the Grizzlies remain a disappointment, and neither you or I has ever drank the Kool-Aid on them as a playoff team. Half-court offense is too bad. Spot-up shooting is too bad. We've talked about these things. We both picked the Lakers to win in six, and that's what happened, but... How concerned are you about what you saw from them for the second straight year being the two seed and not playing up to their seeding in the playoffs? You have to be disappointed. I mean, they're in basketball purgatory. You're in no man's land. And it's different in this in this NBA, right? For a long time, no man's land was picking in the late lottery or one of those struggling playoff teams at the bottom seed. The league's so competitive now, Carson, I feel like we're going to get to a point where not that the Jimmy Butler thing's consistent, but I think we're going to see a lot more parity between teams in the playoffs where seeding isn't as important, and it's really important just the talent that you have on your roster. Like, we are getting to a point in the league today where every team is loaded and stacked with talent. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that with Memphis is... They're not in traditional basketball purgatory. This is a team that's going to be great every single year. This is going to be a team that's going to be consistently good in the regular season and consistently make it there. But you're in purgatory in the sense that are you ever going to win a playoff series? Are you going to be able to get over that hump? 
are you is your star player still going to have issues where he can be exploited in the playoffs where you can give him that jumper consistently you can give him that pull up you can make him work for those tough shots and take away the paint with a really good rim protector and take him out x him out effectively and the biggest thing is about them what we have talked about for i feel like what two years now carson them getting that second star i don't know if triple j is going to ever expand his game to being legitimate as an offensive guy. Now, I think there's things that Triple J can do to make himself better. Very encouraging this season. Attacking mismatches, being more aggressive when you get smaller guys on you, just being more physical in general, using that big body and big frame and strong body to go down on a low block and get easier buckets. Is he ever going to be an offensive superstar? No, I doubt it. And so now, again, the question, that, the crossroads in question we find ourselves at with the Memphis Grizzlies is, how do you get that second star for John Morant? How do you get that second offensive piece to put you over the top? I don't know that he exists, Carson, and I don't know how they're going to be able to find him. Um, shout out them for you know swinging on Zaire Williams. I still like his game. I don't know if he's a star. You know, it, I don't know what you do to really get better to maximize yourself without selling off a star in hopes of finding a better one. You know what I mean? I I don't know if Memphis can do it. And you look at the pieces that they currently have and how they're currently constructed. I mean, I don't know, man. This is not a team I would pick to win a playoff series next year. <laughs> I know a lot can change in one offseason, and we'll see what happens because I do think Memphis needs to retool slightly, needs to rebuild and, re- and tinker with some things. But, yeah, I think they are effectively in, in, in no man's land where you're stuck between real contention and rebuilding. And... It's not just the second star element. They, first of all, need a better number one option if they want to legitimately contend. I still think that Jaw is too exploitable with his willingness to take jump shots and his propensity to miss them. <laughs> like, he's a 31% three-point shooter who's going to take his five a night in the playoffs even more than that, and that can constrict your offense, especially when you're playing him with might as well be a non-shooter in Dylan Brooks. Actually, much worse, a very willing shooter who was going to miss. That's step one. I mean, that's step one, actually, for Memphis. Yeah. You, ni hao, Dylan. You send him off to China. You let him do his thing over there. And, uh, like, dude, I, I said all series long, like, if you're playing Luke Kennard, that's a guy that you have to respect on the wing. You have to stick to him like glue over there. And it just creates more space for your offense. The Lakers don't mm-hmm. care about Dylan Brooks, guys. I don't care what he brings defensively. He's like he's like Andre Roberson, man. He should not be out there playing. He's that bad offensively. I think his goose is cooked, and I think that is step one for the Memphis Grizzlies is to give Dylan Brooks the boot and find someone else to take his rotational minutes. It's a legitimate problem. This has just never been a good perimeter shooting team. 23rd and three-point percenters in the regular season, 31% from deep in this series. So especially when you're trying to build around a dynamic downhill guard like Jaw, the best thing you can do is put a ton of shooting around him, and they haven't done that. Of course, Bain is a phenomenal shooter who just was a bit off tonight, but Triple J's shot has come and gone consistently. They're playing him alongside another big, whether it's Tillman now with the Adams injury or Adams, non-floor spacer and then Dylan Brooks is Dylan Bricks man and their bench has clearly regressed all love in the world to Tyus Jones and Nuke Kennard but 
the losses of the Kyle Anderson and DeAnthony Meltons and Brandon Clark due to injury here. I think all of that stuff matters. But the most concerning thing to me probably was how much Triple J regressed because he was so good offensively in like the last 12 games of the regular season and then game one of this series. He was dropping like 25 a night very efficiently, more physical than we'd ever seen him, more committed to getting downhill, attacking out of the post, his short-range touch shots, the hooks, the floaters were money, and it was like a different guy than we'd ever seen for a stretch that long. And then his last five games in the series, Logan, he was 15 a night, 35% from the field, 24% from deep, and that sadly has been too often the Triple J story inconsistency offensively he clearly got much better this year point blank this five game stretch doesn't take away from that because there were times last year where a lot of times in fact he was a bad offensive player this year he was a good offensive player but this was an ugly end to the year after such a promising stretch so listen until I see some real changes and I see this team excel in the areas that matter in playoff basketball, number one being half-court offense. This is a bottom third half-court offense. Last year was the same story. So you're not going to convince me you're a contender until that changes. And that's that. Let's quickly touch on Hawks Celtics here because this looked like it was going to be a snoozer of a series through two games. And I give the Hawks a lot of credit for putting up a legitimate fight all the way down to the wire in this game, making this a legitimate series. But the Celtics advance, what's your take on this for them? A lot of the same things that we said last episode, so I don't want to belabor any of these points. We do need to just get rid of bad Celtics, (laughs) the bad Celtics that show up some nights. Oh, that'd be nice. (laughs) Hey, man, if that happens, I think they could be world champions. Carson, call me crazy. Um it's just the black and white Celtics that we get, man. They're so hot and cold sometimes, and it's not for an entire game. It's for stretches. I mean, even back to the finals, dude, where uh, Jalen Brown, man, goes to the line, and that swung the series, that game, those moments right there. We just need to see the Celtics be better in clutch moments. We need to see Tatum consistently get downhill and be a Threat. He had seven assists in this game, 30 points, 14 boards. It looked like a completely different Jason Tatum. The Jason Tatum that I am quite more fond of, if I am honest with you. He's just a better player. So I think it starts with Tatum forcing himself. Get downhill. Create opportunities for your teammates. Be the guy. Create more consistent shots. Cut out the turnovers. Cut out the mistakes. Because under the lights, the Boston Celtics have consistently disappointed us. And see, like, this is not a big, this is this is not the big stage that I expect them to even sweat or collapse under. It's the Eastern Conference Finals, and it's the finals. And that's what really concerns me. But it's just getting rid of those bad nights and those bad possessions and those bad runs that the Boston Celtics are unfortunately partial to. They just it happens to them more than it does anybody else, and they are much too talented of a team to let that stop them. Um yeah, I, if we can see more of the good Celtics and less of the bad Celtics, to to boil it down to something as simple as that, it's just something that the Celtics are liable to have happen to them. It feels like any given game. Um, I still think this is the best team in basketball. I think they are the most talented. They're just not the most consistent. 
And that's what I want to see more out of the Boston Celtics. That starts with Jason Tatum being the best version of himself as a downhill scoring threat because that opens up everything else for Boston. This was a game in which we saw very good crunch time Boston after such a memorable collapse throughout the fourth quarter. I mean, Jalen Brown was just exerting downhill force, man. He was getting to the rim. Yeah, I just want to say quick, that is another thing that I think we should hit on. Bro, Jalen, I'm going to steal one of your lines, bro. You've been banging this out for about three pods now. I'm going to steal it real quick. I'm going to use a Carson Brever line. Yeah, 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 go for it. Jalen Brown has been nails in the fourth quarter, bro. <laughs> I don't even, I'm not even quite sure I know what that means, man. If that's a Bay Area saying, um, where, you, so. where you pick that up, man, off the streets. Jalen Brown has been disgusting in the fourth quarters of a lot of these games from the sec- from the second half of this season to this series. Jalen Brown has been a damn good closer in difficult shot making and getting downhill, like you said. If we can get more of that, I mean, that just puts Boston over the top where, I mean, they're two so, like just almost superstars. If Jalen Brown is doing this consistently late game where you can alleviate more of that pressure off Jason Tatum, the Celtics are even in a different class. I already think they're up here in one of the best teams in basketball. If Jalen Brown can continue to close out games and be this ice cold late, it takes them up another notch. Consistently through these playoffs and in the second half of this season, Jalen Brown has been one of the best, I won't even say on this team, one of the best closers in basketball, period. He's been great. You know, people want to talk about who's Batman, who's Robin on this team. Who's the one wearing a sick black mask, Logan? Does it need to go any deeper than that? Jalen was phenomenal. But also, you got to give credit to Tatum for making good decisions. And what I love so much about this team, and why if I had more faith in Tatum to consistently make good decisions and be an efficient scorer of the basketball, they would be the runaway title favorite. And I do still think they're the title favorite now with Milwaukee out of the field. Is the amount of skilled basketball players who are on the floor at all times. Last week, I called them the epitome of modern basketball because they have so many good ball handlers, decision makers, shooters, defenders who can guard multiple positions and what shows that better than them running like Tatum smart pick and roll down the stretch here and having smart dissect guys off the short roll because you got Al Horford you're big in the corner who can make big shots it's just like it's beautiful there's so much space there's so many guys you trust in that big moment and they shot the hell out of the ball in this series made 16 threes a night at 41 percent efficiency their shooting ceiling is incredibly high. And it was another game where the complimentary guys were really good. Marcus Smart, 22-4 and four assists. Malcolm Brogdon, 17-4 and four assists, was awesome from that floater range. And Derek White didn't have a, a very big offensive game, but defended at a high level and was so great overall in this series. And I think it's a very specific thing, Logan, but might be the best trailing pick-and-roll defender I've ever seen. The best rear-view contester. Like... He legitimately blocks shots all the time, trailing out a pick and roll. It probably happened to Trey five times in this series. His timing is unbelievable, and his pursuit, his effort, the guy absolutely deserves to be all defense. So, sure, they can reach low points offensively in the clutch. There's no question about that, but they undoubtedly have the highest ceiling in the NBA, and 
I know that people rag on them for how this series went down towards the end. I thought it was really just game five was bad. Game five showed us everything about the bad Celtics. There's no denying that. But this game, I didn't think it was like, oh man, they should have ran the Hawks. I thought the Hawks mostly played well. So what is your take just very quickly on this for Atlanta, having come back and made this a more legitimate, respectable first round exit? It's a really good question, Carson. And I mean, there's a lot of pieces. That's that's consistently been the most frustrating thing about the Atlanta Hawks is how many individual pieces that I really do like here from Capella to Hunter to DeJounte Murray to Trey to Big O to Bogdan to Jalen Johnson to A.J. Griffin. I mean, these are the Atlanta Hawks are like the on paper NBA Finals champions. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. they have a a really really good roster. It's just about making the puzzle pieces fit together. And personally, I know this is a tough thing to do, especially after you make a trade for Dejounte Murray and you commit to him as potentially your second star. I think you lean into the skid. If Trey Young is going to be your guy, it's kind of like the Luka thing and going out and getting Kyrie, getting another ball handler. If you're not going to stagger those minutes, I don't think it's as effective. Go get yourself a good six-man who can go fill it up if you want a guy to take the ball out of Trey's hands. If you're going to build around Trey Young, if Trey Young is going to be your superstar, then I think you lean into what he does well, and I think you get him, like you said, man, as much space as possible. You keep some of these rim runners around here if that's completely I would personally try to move Capella and keep Big O for the future. I think Onyeka is the shit. I think he's the man. Um, mm-hmm. I'd probably keep Dre. I know his, his shot is inconsistent. He can disappear night to night, but he's a decent catch and shooter. He's a really good defender. I think you retool, but you maximize as much space and you get as many shooters around Trey Young as possible, and you try to make this one of the best offenses in the NBA because we've seen Trey do that repeatedly, make this team one of the best offenses in the NBA. If you can just get them to give effort defensively, I mean, they'll be great. So if that's moving DeJounte, if that's moving some really good pieces that you like, I think you explore it. You give Trey as much space as possible. And if you want that secondary creator, don't put him alongside Trey. Give Trey a bunch of shooting and a bunch of space, and you get a good six-man who you can put in in non-Trey minutes and just go out there and fill it up. Um I don't like the fit with DeJounte Murray. DeJounte had some good games here, man. He had some tough shot making. DeJounte Murray's a good basketball player, but I don't think the fit is immaculate here, and I'd rather have a guy who can space the floor. Honestly, this might seem crazy. I'd rather have Bogdan out there, man. Bogdan's nasty off the catch. Bogdan knocks down crazy shots. I just think the offense could reach higher heights. I know he makes them better defensively, but I would do a dramatic retool here, man. I would see what you can do, and I would lean into the skid, and I would commit to Trey long-term, and I think that's what the Atlanta Hawks want to do. How about instead of Bogey, a fellow named Kevin Herter? I think that could work really nicely. Oh, that'd be great, man. It's Dude, it's crazy. It's almost like he's a really good tough shot maker, really good spot up, sure. DHOs. Crazy. Yeah, man. listen, I don't think you're building a championship caliber team around Trey Young, but I do think the closest you can get is maximizing your defensive and shooting ceiling. Sure, I think Onyeka absolutely can be that guy to hold down the five, and then you get two-way wings who can shoot the hell out of the ball. And Trey's going to elevate your team offense, but I still think that there's limitations. I think that he's going to hold you back with how singularly he needs to dominate the ball. But at the same time, I don't think DeJounte is the guy who fits well, who has the off-ball shooting skill set. I think DeJounte is too limited to amplify Trey and vice versa. But I think his limitations as a shot maker, which we saw pop up again in game six, right? He's never going to be a particularly efficient scorer. 
is going to limit you. His liability defensively. So I think that they've got to be committed to this for another year. And after that, you're going to have real decision time. I don't think DeJounte is going to make sense to retain. I'm sure they would love to move off of John Collins, but I don't really know who's going to be eager to do that. And they'll probably continue to try to make it work around Trey and uh, eventually reach a point where he gets disgruntled, and that's bye-bye. That's my prediction for the five-year plan for the Atlanta Hawks. Let's preview these two conference semifinals that are starting this weekend now, starting with Nuggets Suns, which I am extremely excited for. What is the first major key to you that stands out for this series? Major key, DJ Khaled style. (laughs) Shout out. I think you have to start with defensively what you're going to get out of either of these two units. I mean, I think this is going to be a track meet, for lack of a better term, man. I think you're going to get see. I think you're going to see buckets getting served relentlessly at both ends of the floor. Um, I don't know how the Suns guard the Murray Jokic pick and roll. I think it's going to be deadly, um, especially if we get star Jamal Murray, 27 points per game, 60% true shooting. He has 235 mm-hmm. pieces. Like, I think people will look at the top two guys. Oh, man, KD and Book, Jokic and Murray. Oh, the Suns probably have the better duo. Yeah, I mean, probably, man, but the Murray-Jokic pick and roll is relentless and sets up everything. I think the more important thing, uh, the Suns had a defensive rating of 116 in the first round, dude, and that's tough. I will tell you point blank, period. If the Suns do not, one, show more effort and intensity, it starts there. I did not see an engaged mm-hmm. Suns locked in I don't know if it's something that they can reach. If they can show me that they can play hard, that they can be intense, that they can be physical and impactful, then I think they can beat Denver. But they didn't show me anything in that Clippers series that says we can even be a good defense. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, straight up. And Russ, Norman Powell, gave CP, gave Book, Gave anybody they threw at them fits at getting downhill. You know who else is going to give them fits? Jamal Murray, dude. Do not underestimate him. I mean, I just don't think... I don't know if the Suns have the personnel to defend Denver. I guess that's the key. I don't know if the Suns have the personnel to defend the Nuggets. I don't know if the Nuggets have the personnel to defend Phoenix. Like, it's nightmarish in on both sides of the floor. Yeah. Um, Aiden certainly can't defend Jokic in the post. His career versus Aiden, Jokic has put up 27, 12, and 7. It's going to be tough on both sides. As tough as it is going to be defending the Jokic-Murray pick and roll, guess what? On the other side of the floor, Jokic can't play drop the entire time. KD and Book, CP, if they're doing that straight up, they're going to eat on that. That's why I expect Jokic to step up a little more. He's going to have to to defend these guys. And it could create a world of opportunities on the other side. Eight and a little backside lob, shooters. Basically, I guess I kind of want to cop out here and say, I want to see a game of these guys played because I wonder if the Suns weren't fully locked in and engaged. But I don't think there's going to be a lot of defense played in this series, Carson. I think it's just going to be a matter of who can... Yeah, who's going to outscore uh, the other team every night. It's almost how that basketball is played, you know? Defense is going to be a struggle for both teams in this series. One, because of all the offensive talent you have on the floor, but two, because there's a lack of great, impactful defenders mm-hmm. on both of these teams. I think it's going to be a track meet. I think we are going to see buckets getting gotten at will every single game, and it's who can get buckets more reliably. 
I think you're absolutely right. We are in for one of the most prolific offensive series, I think, of all time. What I do think stands out when I look at this series, I have been so petrified from the jump, and this is why before the playoffs, I picked Phoenix to win this hypothetical matchup then in seven of Jokic guarding that pick and roll probably having to play drop given some of his athletic limitations against three unbelievable mid-range shooters because it's tough to wipe the memory of what we saw when these two teams played in 2021. Totally different iterations, obviously, but Chris Paul scored 11 mid-range points per game on 65% from that range. Now, you are not getting the same Chris Paul. We've talked about previously his regression as a shot maker this year down 10% in the paint, but outside the restricted area, which is really his money range alongside the mid range where he's down four and a half percent versus last year. And this was another series against LA where he was not consistently good as a shot maker. But of course you have a fellow named Kevin Durant stepping up now, who is on a completely different level than anything CP three could ever dream of. And you have book playing as well as he ever has. So that exploitability is very scary. However, I think there is something that Denver can exploit in terms of how they approach this coverage, which is whoever the Suns' fifth guy is. Because I think the weakness of that fifth spot for them gives Denver more ways to hide Jokic than Phoenix does to hide anybody defensively. Because I think that you can put Jokic on that fifth guy as much as possible if it is Torrey Craig, if it is Josh Okoge, so you keep him out of pick and roll. And I actually think you'll probably see more Okogi in this series because Chris Paul cannot guard anybody on this Denver team, but he especially can't guard Jamal Murray. So you need somebody who can. Okogi is a much better point of attack defender than Craig. Craig is just not quite as quick. He's a little bit bigger, has a little bit more trouble navigating screens. So I think it'll be more Okogi. But then you're putting Jokic on a guy who you are content to let shoot all day. Like Okogi took some strides as a shooter this year. And I thought he played some good basketball on that post-All-Star stretch, but he's 25% from deep in this series against the Clippers. He's 29% from deep in his career. You will let him shoot all day. And I legitimately think that Aaron Gordon can capably hang with DeAndre Ayton, and I think he's a good matchup to challenge Book and KD out of the pick and roll. He's athletic, he's competitive, and Ayton is not the kind of guy who bullies a size mismatch with his physicality. He's not comfortable backing you down and putting the ball on the floor. Best he can do is get a couple rebounds over you, put up a couple shots over you that are a little bit cleaner because he's got a couple inches on you, but he's not just going to go at Aaron Gordon all day. So I think that's a good option. Just stick Jokic on the weakest offensive player who's probably going to be in a corner somewhere and who you're fine to leave. Torrey Craig shot the lights out last year, but then, okay, Jokic can be attached to Torrey Craig. I mean, he's not going to do a ton for you as a helper necessarily, but you're still keeping him out of that pick and roll, which is where he is most exploitable by far. And if it's not that approach, you can pre-switch a lot whenever you see them fixing up to involve Jokic in that pick and roll, have somebody else switch into that action. You can, I think, have Jokic play higher in his drop with Gordon on Okogi or whatever, 
So he's fine leaving him to shoot all day. And then Gordon is there as that back line of defense. So if they do blow by Jokic because he's playing higher, then fine. There's somebody there to actually protect the rim, make them make a read. He can congest, contest those jumpers more confidently. I just think that fifth spot's a liability. And I think it's a liability that you can actually strategically expose. And I'm not saying that there aren't going to be moments where Jokic gets exploited in this series and where this Denver defense gets lit up and where the sheer value of Phoenix's shot making from Katie and Book is unbelievable because it's one of the most gifted scoring tandems I think we've ever seen in the game of basketball. All those things are true. This is going to be a great offensive series for Phoenix. It's just who can limit the damage? Who can stop the bleeding just that little bit more? And I actually think that Denver's offense is more truly unstoppable because... First of all, Jokic has the most complete control over the game by far out of anybody here. The combination between scoring and playmaking. And he has his weapons. And he has his guys who he knows exactly how to amplify. Like, as I said, CP3 can't guard anybody here. So if you try to hide him on KCP, KCP is still a lights-out shooter, a great at guy at attacking closeouts, more athletic than CP3. That's a problem. But... The Jamal Jokic pick and roll is, to me, the best in the NBA. And as you said, he's playing at an unbelievably high level right now. You're going to get great looks out of that. You can run inverted pick and roll, run, cause a ton of problems there. MPJ, it doesn't really matter who you put on him. He's an unaffectable shooter. He's one of the greatest off-movement and contested shooters in the game. Just a pure bucket. And Jokic is going to find him. He's going to make some crazy finds to the weak side. And MPJ is just going to pull it. And he'll get six threes in a game doing that. And I am yet to see the team that can take away the Jokic-Aaron Gordon two-man game. Like, if you help just the slightest bit, if it's a lob, if it's just finding Gordon with a nice pass through traffic in the dunker spot as a cutter, those two are going to connect for a few easy buckets every single game. So I just think there's too much shooting here. There's too many weapons. There is too much synergy. We have seen it too consistently. And Jokic is, to me, the best offensive player alive. And there is not an answer for him on this Phoenix roster. And like you said, dude, they're not physical. They're not athletic. They're not big. What are they doing to make this Denver offense that I believe is the best in the NBA uncomfortable at all? There's nothing. So the margin is really, really slim. But I just think I trust the totality of the Nuggets offense a bit more. We have seen the Phoenix lulls because of how reliant they are on pull-up jump shooting specifically. And I just think like they're three through six. I trust so much more than even CP3 and Aiden have had way too many up and down moments. And then the five and six spots are legit questions. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This is Colin Coward from The Herd with Colin Cowherd. Angie's list is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big, small, indoor, outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled pros to get the job done well. Listen, I've got a couple of things in a bathroom in my house. Got to get it fixed. 
I don't have time, and I'm not good at it. Angie is. With just a few taps on the app, you can have Angie tackle your home service project start to finish. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare, and hire pros to ensure a job done well. With 29 years of experience combined with new digital tools to simplify the process, Angie makes completing home projects really easy. It's your one-stop shop. Angie can help you find the best price for your project by comparing quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. They get the difficulties that can come with home projects. They get it. Why not make it as simple as possible? Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com or download the app today. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Marks for Phoenix. I think you're exactly right. I do trust the Nuggets offense consistently more, and it is why you pointed out it's the pull-up jump shooting. The Suns, after making the trade for Kevin Durant, were the most reliant team uh, on pull-up jump shooting. The Nuggets uh, have consistently been a bottom half in the league team in pull-up jump shooting. And so, one, I think that reliance on pull-up jump shooting matters. Like you said, the Suns can go into big lulls where I don't expect the Nuggets to. I think they keep coming. He knows how to use Aaron Gordon as a cutter. He knows how to use these shooters that being Jokic. And I think you're right, too, with how they should utilize Jokic. The one thing that I think the Suns can do better, because I don't, I think the Suns are flat-out outmatched defensively. I think there are a couple of adjustments that the Suns should make to attack this Denver defense. If they do take Jokic off and put him on a Kogi, put him on Craig, put him on that extra guy, which I do think is a good idea. You can use him help side, let that guy shoot if he needs to, especially if it's a Kogi out there on the floor. What can the Suns do to combat that to consistently get more offense? That's D-Book consistently getting downhill. We've seen that in parts of this series. The Clippers didn't have an answer for him. I'd be remiss to think that the Nuggets have an answer for Devin Booker. He's so versatile. Two, utilize Chris Paul when you need to, but let KD do work. Uh, I mean, yeah. they gave the rock to Chris Paul a lot in that first series. Give KD the ball. Let him do his thing. He's the best player on planet Earth. I still fundamentally believe. Give me KD over anybody, especially with what we saw just happen to Giannis. Let KD go out there and do work against his team because I don't think anybody can guard him either. I think KD and Book need to consistently get downhill more and make it a concerted effort to go to the rack. Get more foul calls. If they put Jokic off ball and put him on a Koki and Craig, guess what? I mean, that's a much easier... Jokic is a big body. Like, he's not a great rim protector, but he's still hard to finish over because he's a big dude. If they put him off in the corner, we'll go to the rack. That's my key for Phoenix. Or two keys. Utilize Kevin Durant more like Kevin Durant should be utilized. Out of pick and roll, in isolation. Just put the ball in his hands as much as possible because you didn't against L.A. Mm -hmm. And then two, get downhill and get consistent shots because... If the Suns shoot with as much frequency, the pull-up jumper, as they have in the first round and with KD on this roster, I think Denver wins this series. They need a more reliable way of getting consistent offense 
That's not a worry that I have with Denver, but it is one that I have with Phoenix. As much star power as we have on the court, that is my one red flag about Phoenix's offense, and I think there's a very easy solution for it. Attack downhill, either get Jokic in foul trouble, get to the line, get consistent offense because you have the pieces to make it happen. I am worried about Chris Paul in this series. Not so much from the, wow, he's going to torch Denver out of pick and roll perspective, more from the, man, if he's not commanding your offense, he can be a liability out there because he is going to be the easiest to attack defensively, the most glaring liability to me just given his size and athleticism limitations at this age. And offensively, it's like, yeah, he's going to be a fine catch and shooter for you, but I really am concerned by the inconsistency from him and the inconsistency and frustrations with Aiton. Like, I just think I have so much more faith in Aaron Gordon, in MPJ, in KCP, in Bruce Brown to do their jobs, to play good complementary basketball than I do in the remainder of that Sun supporting cast. So as much as anything, that's got to be the tiebreaker for me. And so I do have Denver in seven here. What's your prediction? If the Suns can get it done in six, I might go Phoenix in six, but my pick is also Nuggets in seven. Like I said, if if Phoenix, I would not take Phoenix in a game seven. I would take them. If they can go up 3-2 and get it done at home, I think they can get it done. But my official prediction is Nuggets in seven. It's a scary series to pick for either side. It is terrifying picking against Kevin Durant and Devin Booker, but I also think you'd have to overlook a lot of glaring flaws to be super confident, and you'd have to be looking past the best offense and the best offensive player in the NBA, and I won't do it, Logan. So Denver and seven, give it to me. Let's talk Knicks heat because that bad boy is going to be starting up on Sunday. What's the first key that stands out to you in that series? The sustainability of what Miami did against Milwaukee. Um, I don't know if it's sustainable. Uh, they shot 45% from behind the yeah. arc, man. Like, Gabe Vincent shoots 42%. Caleb Martin shoots 43 Kevin Love shoots 43 Duncan Robinson shot damn near 75%. Max Struess, 41 I, Like, bro. <laughs> you didn't even mention Jimmy Butler, who shot 44% on over five a game when he doesn't even take them in the regular season. And 60% from the field. I just look, like I said, man, the biggest thing when predicting basketball games to me is consistency and sustainability. What the fuck about what the Miami did, Miami Heat did against Milwaukee is sustainable? I don't know. I, I don't know, bruh. Like, a friend of the show, Jason Temp, laid out some great numbers about Milwaukee because I thought he laid out a great case, man. Mil- this is a team that Miami did struggled against Chicago, that got the dog walked on them by Atlanta, mm-hmm. that I, I thought it was a great point he made. As much as Miami had these late-game heroics with these amazing superstar classic moments from Jimmy, the Bucks pulled a, a Reggie Miller, yep. a Spike Lee. They had an offensive rating of 88 in the fourth, and this is the most mind-boggling number he laid out, a clutch offensive rating of 77, dude. That's... Bro, that's like a middle school team out there, man. I I don't I just don't see how this is sustainable from the Miami Heat. This is a team that we have a lot of tape on in the regular season. They were not consistently great. They do not have 
a lot of great defenders. They don't have a lot of great creators. They have Jimmy Butler, and they have a great coach in Eric Spolstra. And to me, that's it. They've got guys who can shoot some nights and then miss shots other nights. I I just don't know what is sustainable about this Miami Heat formula, and that's the biggest thing to me. I think there are things that they can do offensively to make them better. I think, first and foremost, use, utilizing Bam Adebayo more as a point guy, as a decision maker, just initiating more offense out of him, taking the weight off of Jimmy. Like, yes, man, Jimmy Butler can go superhuman and can boss up in this series and certainly swing it. I'm not saying that he can't. And as a guy who does not like picking against Jimmy Butler, I don't want to. But as a logical thinking person, I don't know what about this Miami Heat formula is sustainable, Carson. And that's the biggest thing to me is... This just seemed like it was a damn good series. They had a lot of things break their way, and they were they took advantage of the opportunities that were presented to them. When Milwaukee choked, Miami was there at every point to put their foot back on it. I, so yeah, I, I just I don't think this is sustainable for multiple series. I, I don't. I would have to agree with you. And I think that that's why this is, to me, what we just saw, the craziest upset that I can remember. And I know that there was somebody who was very disgruntled under our last video because we said that and calling it a bunch of recency bias. And look, buddy, nobody values the history of the game more than I. And if we look at the other 1-8 upsets, right? If you look at the We Believe Warriors, that was a legitimately very good basketball team in the home stretch of the season. They won 16 of their last 21. The configuration of the roster changed. They pick up Steven Jackson and Al Harrington. Of course, Dallas won 67 games. Great team. But that was a talented basketball team. You got Monte. You got B. Diddy. You got the guys who I just mentioned. Like, there was an upside there. You got Jay Rich, of course. So... I just don't think that this Miami team stacks up compared to like some of these other historic upsets we've seen because I have to agree with you. Like how do they create consistent offense in this series? Because this was the number 25 offense this year in the regular season. And it was the worst of any team to make the playoffs. And then they exploded. They were the number two team in the first round in terms of offensive rating. You mentioned 45% from deep this past series, regular season, 34%, 27th in the NBA. Now, playing more dynamic shooters, sacrificing some other things, defense essentially, athleticism, with the Kevin Love, with the Duncan Robinson minutes, but I still don't know that that shooting ceiling is sustainable, and they need that and crazy Jimmy Butler again because you mentioned the collapse from Milwaukee and the big-time clutch heroics and execution from Miami. But again, it was 56 from Jimmy, and then it was 42 from Jimmy, and it was the remarkable collapses from Milwaukee in both, blowing double-digit fourth-quarter leads. For Miami to eke out two wins, and Giannis didn't play in the first three games. So, Jimmy, I do think you have to also look at as a shooting outlier because... Listen, maybe playoff Jimmy is just a completely different being. All right, maybe he goes and just is in his cryo chamber throughout the regular season. It's clone Jimmy who's turned down 25%, and then he comes out back in the playoffs and he's fresh. But this season, his effective field goal percentage on pull-ups was 
45% in the regular season. And in this past series, it was 56%. It's like, of course, he's getting into the lane consistently, drawing fouls, making his floaters, getting by people. But that variance as a jump shooter is insane. And I don't know if that's replicable. And if it isn't, they're just at a talent deficit. And I also think, I mean, Josh Hart, R.J. Barrett, Quentin Grimes coming back, that's a pretty good rotation of wings to throw at Jimmy Butler. I don't know that it matters when he's at his best, when he's unconscious. We just saw that was a super talented Milwaukee defense that he shredded. But how unconscious can he be? How unconscious can these shooters be again, I think is a very important question to ask. Something that stands out to me is the size and athleticism mismatch here because the Heat are small. They were the number 18 rebounding team this year, and we just saw the Knicks grab over 39% of available offensive boards last series against Cleveland after they were the number two offensive rebounding team in the regular season. So we know that that is real. And I just look at the matchups that Miami is going to have to deal with. New York is hopeful that Julius Randle plays game one after he aggravated that ankle injury. And if he does, I think Bam is clearly the best option to guard him, right? We know that Bam does well in one-on-one matchups against big physical downhill guys. He can stonewall them a little bit, take them out of their comfort zone. The more you force Julius Randle to settle, I think the more that you're winning, the more you take away his opportunities to playmake, the more you're winning that matchup. Nobody else on this Miami defense can do that. I mean, you throw Kevin Love at him is a big guy. You could have Bam and help, but I don't know. One-on-one, that's a problem. But if anybody other than Bam is matched up with Mitchell Robinson, then that is a complete physical size mismatch. I mean, the guy had six offensive boards per game last series, and we saw what Brooke Lopez just did to Miami when they guarded him with smaller guys. Of course, Brooke is a much more skilled scorer, so he's able to attack those mismatches differently, but the guy had 54 points and 21 boards in the last two games of this series. He ate them alive. So then you look in the backcourt, And you think, all right, we need somebody to guard Jalen Brunson because the Cavs certainly couldn't do it. And I think that Jimmy is your best option there because Brunson is not predicated on his quickness, right? I think you give him a longer, bigger athlete and just overall your best perimeter defender in Jimmy Butler. He's got the best chance of making him uncomfortable because the Max Struces, the Gabe Vincents of the world, that's a problem. But then... That means R.J. Barrett's going to have a huge athletic advantage over somebody else, and especially with how we saw him play in these last few games of the Knicks series where he's weaponizing that, where he's committed to getting downhill and attacking the rim. I mean, that's a big problem too. So maybe it's more Caleb Martin who can compete a bit more in those arenas than like uh, Gabe Vincent, even though Vincent was good in this past series. But it's just like a constant game of pick your poison. That's how this series feels to me for Miami. And I get that they were more outmatched against Milwaukee, but again, that took some exceptional work of the basketball gods and Jimmy Butler, who maybe is the basketball god, so maybe he'll just do it again. But I really, really feel that they are outmatched in that size, athleticism, rebounding, that entire area of the game. I completely agree. I think that's the second biggest key in this series. Uh, The thing, too, about it, Carson, you mentioned what they do schematically. The thing about Mitchell Robinson, too, and something that I think we saw in this Cavs series is 
even when they ran pick and roll, right, you've got to switch off. This is an area where I think Miami especially doesn't stack up. Miami has a great switching defense straight up at guarding guys one-on-one, especially because Bam Adebayo is that chess piece that you can put him on anybody and he can guard anyone. But I want you to think about this in theory. You run a pick and roll with Brunson and you get a Bam screen or you get a Bam has to switch on to Brunson or something like that, right? If Brunson puts up a shot, yeah. Or if Brunson moves the ball and a shot goes up, guess what? We saw this all all day long in the Cleveland series. Mitchell Robinson has a smaller guy on him on the low block, and that's an easy offensive board. The Knicks grabbed nearly 17 offensive boards a night in that yeah. series. Those are against two trees where if you had that switch, you at least had Mobley or Allen on the backside. This is a luxury that the Miami Heat do not possess. And so... I think that's a huge discrepancy. In the playoffs, the Knicks are grabbing almost 10 more total rebounds per game, and they're grabbing nine, almost 10 more offensive rebounds per game. I think, I completely agree with you, my friend. I think they are massively outmatched when it comes in terms of the glass, and I don't think there's a whole lot they can do about it. Robinson, Hardenstein are going to eat. R.J. and Randall are athletic, and when they want to crash the glass and play physical, they can. And then you've got Josh Hart, who is just one of the best rebounding wings in basketball, and that's something that Miami just doesn't have. That, to me, is a huge key to this series. Now, on the flip side of that, Carson, if Julius Randall and R.J. play, I think they are big X-factors, too, in this series in the Mm -hmm. sense of what versions of these two guys do we get. Yep. Uh, You know, if Randall plays one, we're worried about him and his ankle injury— if Julius Randle is settling for pull-up jump shots and settling for his jumper, that's not good Julius Randle. Same thing with R.J. Barrett. When Brunson can collapse the defense and garner so much attention inside the arc, the two best things that those guys can do are attack closeouts, be physical, and get downhill. More importantly, not just playing off of Brunson, you're going to be attacking guys that are smaller, inferior, and can't hang with you in those departments. I think there's going to be a lot of mismatches that the Knicks could and should hunt, Mm -hmm. and that is by being physical and getting downhill. Um, To me, that's the biggest department, Carson. Uh, The Knicks should be able to out-physical the Miami Heat. And look, man, uh, the Knicks are not a great shooting team. I've noted this throughout. I think the Knicks could uh, shoot themselves out of a series very well. But again, that being said, I don't. I still don't think the Miami Heat are a great shooting team to where they can exploit that to a massive, massive advantage in this series. Mm-hmm. So, look, man, there's a world. There is certainly a world, Carson, where the Miami Heat back-to-back somehow knock down 40% of their three-point shots, where they are unconscious, making 50% of their contested jump shots, where Jimmy Butler goes superhuman and does it again and looks like a monster. I wouldn't predict it. I'm I'm riding with New York in this series, man. So am I. I do think it's important that you brought up the potential for Randall or RJ to shoot themselves in the foot. Like, we just saw the worst version of Julius Randall basically for that entire series. He got benched in the closing stretch of Game 4. He was 14 a night on 34% from the field, and having that guy in a high-volume role offensively with his just volatile swings as a jump shooter can at times be a problem. 
But I like that Tibbs showed that he was willing to bench him because I don't think they need good Randall to win this series. I think they're still more talented. I just think they need to avoid actively really bad Randall taking up meaningful possessions and hurting you, Randall. But, I mean, you mentioned some of the guys who the Knicks have that you just feel like can swing a game. Obviously, Mitchell Robinson was so huge in that past series. So was Josh Hart. When I look at the third and fourth guys for the Heat, I just don't see that kind of versatile two-way winning plays impact that those two can give me. RJ, again, very good in the home stretch. Quentin Grimes is a better traditional 3 and D player than like probably anybody Miami has. I will say, I think Caleb Martin is solid. But Obi, energy, athleticism, rebounding, shooting, quickly shooting, playmaking. They just have more options, period. I feel like the Heat have one path to winning a basketball series, and it is Jimmy goes insane, we shoot the hell out of the ball, and we do our Heat thing where we outsmart, outclutch, outhustle you, basically. And I just don't know how replicable that is. It's just, again, a more exclusive path, whereas I feel like the Knicks it can be like, okay, well, hey, Randall's jump shot is on. He's having one of those stretches that he has. Great, we win that way. RJ's getting to the rim consistently. We win that way. Brunson goes off for 35, or it could be Brunson as an off-shooting night, but he still controls the game. Josh Hart's the hero. Mitchell Robinson's the hero. Emmanuel Quickly's the hero. I just see more routes, so I'm going to go Nixon six. What's your official prediction? I'm going to give Jimmy to the to the break. I'm going to go Nixon wow. seven. Wow. It's going to be really interesting how this Miami team follows this up because I'm still trying to wrap my head around how such a superior basketball team, Milwaukee, obviously blew it, but also how Miami went out there and took it because Jimmy Butler is a god. But I do think that this follow-up will be interesting in framing like how people view that Miami upset all time because I think if they get washed by the Knicks, people are going to be like, how in God's name did that happen? But... If they win, then we got to start having some conversations about Jimmy Butler and his basketball legacy, man, because it would just be at an absurd point. All right, there you have it, guys. This is going to be another fun weekend of basketball, a little bit quieter, but of course we get the second round started. We'll have Dubs Kings Game 7, and after that, Sunday night, probably getting to most of you first thing Monday morning, we will have another podcast previewing the remaining second round series that will not have started yet at that point and reacting to all of the action from the weekend. So that's when you guys will hear from us next in full podcast form. But of course you can catch us across social media. TikTok is at nerd sesh. That's where we're most consistently active, posting tons of fun trivia stuff, posting clips from this podcast. Follow us on Instagram, same handle. Twitter is at nerd underscore sesh. You can join our discord if you want to really just talk with us about anything sports we're in there and we'd like to grow that community because it's a fun place to interact directly with you guys. So the link to that is in our link tree across our social media handles in our bios. And if you enjoyed the pod, please feel free to go ahead, give it a, a rating. Why don't you? And if you watched on YouTube, then we appreciate you guys too. And if you didn't know, we are posting all of our full shows to the volume YouTube page now, because in case you missed last episode, big announcement, we are now a part of the volume Colin Coward's podcasting company that 
has names such as Draymond Green, Richard Sherman, Colin Coward, and now Logan Camden. So, appreciate you guys, as always. Hope you've enjoyed. I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sash. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel... It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.